You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Last week, in response to a request from a friend, those who were with us would recall, um, and also in response to the protests that were held daily on the streets were of Melbourne, I did something that I rarely do from the pulpit, and that's to dip my toe into the ocean of politics and COVID responses. And I say ocean and not pond, because even the best swimmers can drown when they get into these waters. And my friend asked for my thoughts on an article that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald just recently about the likelihood that the New South Wales government was only going to permit worshippers into church who could show proof of vaccination when New South Wales reopens. And some church ministers in Sydney have reportedly publicly contemplated civil disobedience. And one of them was quoted as saying, even if it is consistent and churches are treated the same as cinemas, I still question whether the government has the right to impose on churches something that we don't accept. Now that raises a complex question of when, if ever, the government has right to exert its authority over local churches or churches, uh, local church or churches, and when, if ever, the church should submit to the government. It's not an easy question to answer, as I, uh, as I hope you realised last week. It's not as easy as a simple yes or no, as many Christians assume. Now, I'm not sure how convincing my response was for you last week, but uh, remember that wasn't the complete and definitive answer. It's also important to keep in mind, of course, that smarter men than me have arrived at different conclusions to me. But in essence, my response was, based on Romans 13 and some church history, that there are times when the state can legitimately impose restrictions on the church that limit or prevent public and gathered worship for a time. So what are the limits of governmental authority in matters that impact the church? Where is the line in the sand that we as Christians cannot cross? And how do we determine when it's acceptable and even required of us to disobey the government's demands? How do we decide what is a fitting and appropriate response? To briefly recap on my message last week, I asked what the New Testament commanded about churches gathering, because that's one of the major issues that churches have. When and how frequently a church must gather, were the main questions I asked. And I concluded that I can't actually see any command in Scripture that a local church should meet on a Sunday morning or any other day of the week, for that matter, for their main worship service, and nor that we should even meet weekly. Now, don't imagine that I'm saying that it's therefore okay to stop meeting entirely or to only meet when we feel like it. Not at all, as most of you, I'm sure, would know I passionately believe in the need to meet regularly and frequently. I've stated that frequently from the pulpit and I've berated Christians who give up church because they've been hurt or they get lazy or busy or for any other reason. It's unhealthy and it's potentially deadly to Christian faith. But as I said last week, while the church doesn't appear, or while the Bible doesn't appear to command meeting together weekly as a local church, it certainly does imply it. And a lack of desire to gather speaks a lot about the state of your heart. That's a serious issue. 
Now, with R.C. Sproul's help, we also define the function and authority of government. He says that government has at least three functions. Firstly, to protect people from evil and to preserve and maintain human life. Secondly, to protect human property by making and enforcing laws about ownership, theft, damage and destruction. And thirdly, to regulate agreements, uphold contracts, ensure just weights and balances, and in a nutshell, to protect people from fraud. So the first and most relevant function for our discussion is to preserve and to maintain human life. It should be pretty obvious that the primary intention of governments pretty much everywhere at this time is to preserve and maintain human life. We might fault the methods they use, we might fault the reasoning behind it, but it should be plain that at least they are trying to protect life. Now, the Apostle Paul addressed our relationship to the state most clearly in Romans 13, where he said in Romans 13:1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That, on the face of it, seems to be pretty clear. Disobedience to the government is disobedience to God. That appears to be what Paul is telling us. And that doesn't just mean disobedience about COVID restrictions and masks and lockdowns and vaccinations. It means disobedience about paying taxes, about speeding, about shoplifting, about moving the boundary pegs on your property, or any other number of laws that the government has legislated. Now, Paul isn't the only one who talks this way in Scripture. Peter does it too when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, which I fear many Christians do, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. There's a sermon in that passage alone, but note that Peter confirms everything that Paul says about obedience to the law. The Bible says this sort of thing in plenty of places. Paul writes a similar thing to Titus in, in chapter 3 of Titus and in 2 Timothy 2. He tells us we must pray for our leaders. So we're not just picking and choosing certain passages to suit our opinions. Now I'm not sure whether I find it disturbing or amusing at how many Christians seem to have worked out what is really going on behind the scenes about how many of them know for sure that the government is working towards a communist state and how many of them are certain 
that the police force is secretly controlled by Freemasons. But I wonder how many Christians are asking the bigger question of what God is doing in our time, about how all this fits in with his plans and purposes. Is the Lord doing something in, with and through this worldwide crisis and these local lockdowns that's beyond our limited vision? Or do you think God is powerless in this world? R.C. Sproul notes that Peter and Paul do not speak of the authorities to be, be, to be obeyed as necessarily being godly authorities, but they do say that God has appointed them. God raises governments up and God brings them down. The Old Testament is filled with incidents such as recorded in the book of Habakkuk in which people are rebellious against God and God punishes them by giving them wicked rulers that cause them to struggle in oppression and pain until they repent. I wonder if that could be what God is doing at the moment. I've heard plenty of Christians say that God is punishing Victoria at the moment, not just with the civil unrest, but also with the recent earthquake, which, to my knowledge, caused no physical harm and only minor structural damage. It's a not a very good punishment if that's what you're trying to do. But maybe he is trying to get our attention. But then, maybe not. Who can say for sure? But if you believe that God is punishing us, what should your response be? Protest in the street or repentance and prayer? I don't need to tell you the answer to that. I've also heard of Christians who insist that we should fight against the government because this is what the book of Revelation warns us about. The Antichrist is here and the one world government is coming. Really? If that is true, and I have my doubts, but if that is true, then why are you fighting? And who are you fighting? Doesn't that mean that you're fighting against God, fighting against what he has already revealed that he intends to do with human history? That's dangerous ground to be on. I, for one, wouldn't want to be fighting with God. I have a sneaking suspicion that he would win. Now, there are consequences for breaking the law, consequences before earthly rulers, and as Paul said, consequences before God. And there should be consequences. There must be consequences. Otherwise, we would live in anarchy and a constant state of fear. I touched last week on what is expected of the police too. Their job is to enforce the laws that the government has made. The police aren't supposed to decide whether they like the law, whether it's wise or even whether it's just. Their job is to make sure that the law is obeyed. Which is why we need to be careful about criticising the police for enforcing laws around COVID lockdowns and protests. They're only fulfilling their duty. You don't like it? Complain to your local MP. But don't knock the cops. Of course, some of the police responses have been heavy-handed. There's no doubt about that. And there's also no doubt that the cops aren't perfect. But picture this. If you're doing 50 in a 40 zone outside of school, the policeman there may part choose to turn a blind eye to it. Maybe there's no kids around at the moment. Maybe he has more pressing matters. 
But if he doesn't book you, be grateful. He's chosen to be lenient towards you. Now imagine a Hell's Angels biker gang is riding past that same school and they see the policeman there. And imagine kids are being let out of school at the time and trying to cross the road. And imagine also that some of the bikies deliberately speed up to 100 and others start doing burnouts in front of the school. Isn't it obvious that they're daring the copper to do something about it? Isn't that the point of their defiance, their breaking the law, to challenge the policeman and to challenge the law? What should he do then? Should he turn a blind eye? Or should he apply force? Or should he apply even extreme force to deal with them? Should we be sympathetic to the bikies if the SWAT team were called in to manhandle them to the ground? Haven't they only received what they should expect to receive. And so the more extreme the defiance of the law, the more extreme the force required to deal with that defiance. Which is exactly what we saw in the recent protests. If the protesters went home peacefully when requested, there would have been no consequences at all. But the continued defiance, the increasing numbers of protesters joining in, the aggression and the senseless violence that some showed, required a more forceful response. Now, the fact that some of the protesters might have been doing harmless activities out there doesn't make any difference. The protest required a more forceful response. Don't blame the police for enforcing the law. They're just doing what they're expected to do, what they're commissioned to do. And they're doing exactly what we would want them to do if we were the ones being threatened. Now, I also talked last week about a time in history that some, somewhat parallels our COVID times. In fact, there are remarkable similarities to our times. You've all heard of the Black Death, the bubonic plague that swept through Europe. It started up initially in the 6th century and it came back with a vengeance a number of times over the centuries. In 1665, at the tail end of what is known as the second pandemic, London experienced another outbreak that killed 100,000 people in 18 months. The city leaders blocked the ports, quarantining ships offshore for 40 days before allowing entry. Households were locked down. Whoever could afford to left London for the relative safety of the countryside. Interestingly, before leaving the city gates, they had to show a certificate of good health signed by the Lord Mayor. Sound familiar? Of course, people living in rural villages began to resent the influx of city folk to their areas and the risk that that brought to their own health and freedom. Bodies mounted up in London faster than could be disposed of and mass graves were dug that housed a thousand or more corpses. That might invoke images of New York City last year. Because no one knew the cause of the plague at that stage, there was a lot of wrong and misleading information. Huge bonfires were lit in the streets to cleanse the air. Tobacco was claimed to protect against the disease. And of course all this meant that trade and businesses dried up and the streets were empty of people. At its peak, up to 7,000 people a week were dying. While the outbreak was concentrated in London, it did spread to some rural areas. 
A merchant apparently brought the plague to a village in Derbyshire that had been able to avoid infection up until then. And as it spread through the, vill the village, the villagers imposed a quarantine upon themselves to stop further spread of the disease. It was effective in stopping the disease spreading outwards, but the villagers paid a heavy toll. A third of their people died. The city of Bristol was able to limit the death toll to less than 1%, but only due to strict limitations on freedoms imposed by the city council. The similarities with our time are remarkable, don't you think? Incidentally, bubonic plague still exists today in the USA and other places, although infection rates are still are now extremely low. But back to the Great Plague of London. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, who lived through it all, wrote two years later about the duty of the church in light of government demands to close the doors. And Baxter was not one to capitulate to the authorities without good cause. In fact, he did several stints in prison for defying the state when he felt they overstepped their authority in regard to church matters. But Baxter wrote, If the magistrate for the greater good, as the common safety forbids assembly, church assemblies in a time of pestilence, assault of enemies or fire or the like necessity, it is a duty to obey him. Of course, that begs the question of whether we are always to submit blindly to the government, the magistrate, as Baxter puts it, or whether there are times we must disobey. And Baxter deals with that question too in the form of a question and answer. Question 109. Should we stop holding church meetings on the Lord's Day if the magistrate forbids them? Answer 1. It is one thing to forbid them for a time, for some special cause, as infection by pestilence, etc., and another to forbid them explicitly or with contempt. Now, that would be parallel to our time. We've been asked to stop meeting for a time to try to get on top of this pestilence, as Baxter would put it. Secondly, it's one thing to forbid them for a time and another to do it permanently. The key phrase is for a time. Should the government ban church meetings permanently, then we would have no option but to disobey. But that doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. Certainly it can feel like it's permanent when we've been closed down for so long. And we don't yet know when the restrictions will be lifted, but no government anywhere is threatening to close down churches permanently, as far as I can see. Indeed, all the governments are locking down now with the stated longer-term goal of reopening later when they consider it safe. We've seen that happen in the past 18 months, when the authorities have felt it safe to allow some limited regathering. It hasn't lasted very long, but they've allowed us to regather for periods. So outcries about the state trying to close down churches would seem to be a bit overblown, a bit of the boy crying wolf situation. Thirdly, Baxter says it's one thing to stop meeting in obedience to the law and another to stop meeting out of caution or for necessity. Now, he's arguing here that if meeting this Sunday would make it more likely we are not able to meet next Sunday and Sundays following, then to insist on meeting now is unwise. If the government decides, for example, to punish all churches everywhere because some choose to meet in defiance of the rules, then we're really shooting ourselves in the foot. 
That's what's just happened to the building industry in the last couple of weeks. If the churches are forced to shut down longer term because they're found to be part of the cause of the spread of COVID, then again, we not only harm ourselves, but we harm all other churches. And we harm our Christian witness in the community by disobeying today. Like I said, these are all serious matters to weigh up and there's no easy answers. Wiser people choose different paths and they choose them in good conscience. But we need to be pretty sure we're justified in civil disobedience if we take that path. I'm personally not convinced we are justified, at least not yet, and not with present indications from the government. So Baxter reasoned, wisely and correctly, I believe that there are times we should obey the government's directive to close the church. And he suggests it's both permissible and wise to close the doors for a time and in special circumstances. And he doesn't consider it sin to obey the authorities to do that. However, it's for a time and in special circumstances only, not forever. If the magistrate's intention was to target churches only, then that would be a blatant plan to silence Christians and to prevent the spread of the gospel. That hasn't happened, but it would change the way we would be required to respond. Seems pretty clear to me, as I've said, the government only intends lockdowns and church closures to be temporary, not permanent. And the purpose of it all is precisely so that we can open the doors again sometime in the future. Now, it's lasted much longer than we anticipated, but the church isn't being singled out, as far as I can see. We're just caught in the crossfire with restaurants, cinemas, footy clubs, builders and the rest of society. If you're inclined to disbelieve that and think we are being targeted, consider that the government is subjecting itself to these same rules. The highest level of government, even cabinet meetings, are being held by Zoom instead of face-to-face. So it's a bit of a stretch to say the government is trying to shut down churches by banning in-person meetings. So when should we disobey? When must we disobey? The easy answer, of course, is when obedience to the state means disobedience to God. But what exactly does that mean? It's not always clear-cut. And a statement like that is too simplistic to be of any real help to any of us. The clearest and most obvious situation would be if the state tries to make all churches everywhere close their doors permanently. Of course, if their intention was to stop any church worship and preaching and the other things associated with local church activities, they'd also need to ban churches from Zoom and Facebook and WhatsApp and every other form of communication. In 21st century Australia, indeed in any democratic society, do you think that's realistic? How would they even begin to implement those sorts of restrictions? The book of Acts, however, shows us a genuine attack on the church in Acts chapter 4. You'd recall the apostles have been boldly and publicly preaching Jesus Christ, And the people were being saved by the thousands. This alarmed the Jewish leaders who had not long before put Jesus to death. And so they went out and arrested Peter and John and demanded that they stop speaking to anyone in the name of Jesus. 
Acts 4.19 tells us, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That was a direct attack on the gospel. Of course, Peter and John and all the other disciples and apostles could not keep quiet. We cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard, they said. Seems to me that's a pretty clear guideline for us. If the state should forbid the preaching of the gospel, then it seems pretty obvious that we must continue to speak of what we've seen and heard. That means that as a church, we must continue to preach and teach the word of God as accurately and as clearly and as boldly as we're able, regardless of the potential consequences. In the next chapter of Acts, the Jewish, realizes, uh, Jewish leaders realised that they hadn't silenced the apostles at all, so they arrested them all and put them in prison. If you want to defy the government, be prepared to face the consequences. The apostles, as we know, were miraculously released when an angel opened the prison doors, leading them out and telling them to go preach in the temple again. But don't assume that you will experience the same sort of miracle just because they did. You might end up writing in prison. But is the message of Jesus Christ so precious to you that you'd take that risk? Anyway, the temple guards found them preaching and teaching in the temple and brought them back before the leaders. It's interesting to note that Acts 5.26 tells us that they went willingly. They were unforced back to meet the priests and the council. I fear very few Christians today would go willingly. If recent events are any indication, most of them would have to be dragged back in the rear of a police paddy wagon. The high priest, of course, was incensed that they had so blatantly disobeyed the warning and demanded the response from them. How dare you continue to preach in this man's name when we told you not to? But Peter and the apostles answered, Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. This shows us, I think, the clearest example of why and when we have no option but disobedience. When the authorities specifically try to stop the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And closing churches temporarily or limiting church meetings to only the vaccinated doesn't do that. It doesn't stop us preaching Christ. But how might this play out in modern times? It'd be almost impossible to, spread the, to stop the spread of the gospel here in Australia through the internet or social media or similar technology. To do that, they'd have to try, try to control and censor the internet like China and some other nations do today. It's hard to see that happening in Australia. Not impossible, but it's hard to see. But there are some more subtle ways to achieve a similar result. The government may try to control, for example, what is preached from the pulpit by making it illegal to say certain things from the pulpit. We've seen a bit of that here in Victoria in recent years. Some pastors have been charged with hate speech or similar so-called crimes for comparing Christianity to Islam. But pastors face the same risk 
every time they preach what the Bible says about marriage. One man and one woman joined together for life to the exclusion of all others. Preach that and you're likely to be labelled homophobic, discriminatory, divisive, you name it. It's not a popular message today and it leaves us open to potential lawsuits. We face a similar risk by insisting that God only designed us to be male or female, not intersex, not indeterminate, or by insisting that humans were created to be heterosexual and anything else is not God's design. Or, horror of horrors, that we should declare that Jesus Christ is the one and only way of salvation. These are all biblical teachings that we should hold to unwaveringly, no matter what the government requests or demands or legislates. We must obey God rather than men. And if that means a jail term, then that's the price we have to be prepared to pay. Now there's other subtle attacks on the gospel too. One is the legislation soon to be presented to Victorian Parliament that would prevent Christian schools from hiring staff who affirm the school's Christian beliefs. A question we have to ask is why is it okay for a political party to ensure their employees uphold the party policies, but not so for Christian schools? That's a direct attack on any faith-based school, not just Christian, and it will eventually erode the beliefs and the principles that the school teaches. That needs to be opposed. Christians should be opposed to abortion. Our government doesn't force people to have abortions, thankfully, but we have seen a government that forced abortions on their citizens in recent, recent decades, and by some accounts still does. China's one-child policy permitted citizens to have only one child. Any second or third pregnancies resulted in a forced abortion, and sometimes in sterilisation had a sad side effect of seeing many female babies aborted because of a cultural preference for boys. It's no longer official policy as of 2015, thankfully, but should our government ever impose a similar policy, we would be obliged to oppose it. In the book of Exodus, you'd recall that the Hebrew midwives did just that at the risk of their own lives. So there are times when Christians must disobey the government. And it seems to me that time is when the gospel of Jesus Christ is under direct threat of being shut down by the government, of being banned by them. Or when government legislation results in direct attacks on the image of God in humans, ungodly things such as abortion and euthanasia. We have a duty to disobey. But I don't personally believe that temporary church shutdowns or even requirements for double vaccinations and masks among worshippers falls into the same category as an attack on the gospel. As Christians, though, we do have strategies that we can employ faithfully and biblically and weapons that don't require fury and protest and civil disobedience. The first one is prayer. How many Christians begin their response to issues they disagree with by praying? Not enough, I'd suggest. 
if you're not praying about the situation, and if you're not praying for your government, why are you taking up the weapons of the flesh? You've got things in the wrong order. Paul tells us that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Christians have never defeated oppressive governments by waging war according to the flesh. Any victory we may achieve is always in response to prayer. But there are other legitimate avenues we can pursue. Given that we live in a democratic society, how many who complain or protest about COVID restrictions have taken the time to make use of the appropriate and lawful avenues to address the grievances? Have you contacted your local Member of Parliament? If enough people register their concerns directly with their representative, then his or her obligation is to take it seriously and begin to pressure the government from within to change their policy. I have no statistics to back this up, but if I were a betting man, I'd bet that only one or two in a hundred have done this. But we should pursue this before protesting. If that fails, it can be challenged in the courts, put together enough people with the conviction to see it through and launch a class action suit against the government. Who's pursuing this course of action? Now these things take time though, and we Christians have become impatient. We demand change now. We don't look longer term anymore. If all that fails, there's a ballot box at the next election. There was a recent petition to initiate a recall election of Daniel Andrews. I'm no scholar of Australian constitution or electoral law, but I don't think there is any provision for a recall election in Australia. It was an exercise in futility. And even if there were, I suspect the result would not be what the petitioners had hoped for. You only have to look at recent elections in Queensland and Western Australia to see that the opposition was decimated and decimated in those elections in the midst of a COVID crisis and lockdowns. I suspect a recall election here in Victoria would bring the same result. So if you don't like the way the government is handling the COVID crisis, whether you believe it's a genuine crisis or not, there are legitimate first avenues to air your grievances. But I'm just not convinced, in light of Scripture, that civil disobedience and street protests are the God-honouring way to do it. I sometimes want to say to Christians, for they're often the worst culprits, get a grip of yourself. What we too often display is not faith in an all-powerful God who knows exactly what he is doing in every age and in every place. Rather, we too often display a lack of faith and a lack of patience. For those Christians who are convinced we're living in the last of the last days, living out the book of Revelation, might remind you that Revelation wasn't written to stir us to rebel against the authorities, challenge you to find anywhere in that book where it tells us to do that. In fact, the book opens with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The things that must soon take place. 
There's no grey areas here. Even if you do believe that all governments everywhere are working towards that one world government, new world order, it's inevitable. God himself has said that it must happen. Rather, the whole book is an encouragement to stand firm in the face of the most brutal persecution imaginable. Persecution far worse than anything we're seeing in this lockdown. You won't find anywhere in that book that we're told to fight it. Rather, we are called to trust. To trust in the one who uses the greatest opposition and the most brutal persecution to achieve his purposes in the world. Just like he used the implacable opposition and persecution of Satan to affect Satan's very defeat and our salvation. God's ways are not our ways. That's what the book of Revelation is telling us Christians. When the night seems darkest, we are to trust. Just like Job did after facing the greatest calamity imaginable. Job 1.20 Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Where are the Christians whose first and only response to calamity is repentance and worship? And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. God has never made a mistake. Do you realise that? Never, not once. Don't fall into the trap of charging God with doing wrong by your lack of trust in him. He has never lost control. He has never been blindsided by unexpected events. Rather, every single event of human history is working towards achieving our salvation and his dominion. If that's true, then why are we so quick to take up arms to rebel? And why are we so slow to trust him and his work? For that's what we should be doing, even if we don't understand what God's up to. That's what we should be doing, especially when we don't understand what God's up to. And these are times that we just don't understand. But we are called to worship and to trust. Let's pray. Father, too much of Christianity has, I think, shown a lack of faith, a lack of trust in you. Lord, we repent of that. We repent on behalf of all Christians everywhere. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, of what you expect us to do, how best to manage situations that we find ourselves in. And Lord, that you would teach us first of all to trust, as Job did. Trust, I don't understand what's happening, Lord. It's the most unbearable, unpleasant thing I've ever experienced. But Lord, I will fall down and worship you. Lord, I pray that Job would be our inspiration, not just because we see Job and think 
okay, let's tough it out, but Lord, because you have worked in our hearts to cause us to trust you in all and every circumstance. Lord, if that means at some point we are forced to civil disobedience because we must keep speaking of what we have seen and heard, and if that means, Lord, that we are imprisoned, then so be it, Lord, would you give us the courage to do so, the strength to do so, the wisdom to know when that time is right. And in the shorter term, Lord, I pray that you would give us patience. One of the fruit of the Spirit you promised to us, Lord, give us patience. Give us discernment to see how you are working in these times, how you are using such worldwide disaster to achieve your purposes and to call your people faithfully back to you. Lord, I pray that all of us would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And Lord, that everything we see of him in the Gospels is as true today as it ever was. That he is faithful, he is reliable, he is compassionate. Lord, we pour our hearts out to you. That we hurt in so many ways. We hurt by isolation. We hurt by confusion and doubt. But Lord, we place ourselves in your hands. And we choose to trust you, Lord. Trust your leading. Trust your wisdom. Lord, your foolishness is greater than man's wisdom. Your weakness is greater than our strength. And Lord, we cry out to you for your wisdom and your strength. I pray, Lord, for the church right around the world that their eyes would be focused on the good news of Jesus Christ and him alone, that you would put fibre in our souls, that you would put steel in our spine, that no matter what the, the governments, no matter what the world might throw at us, we are secure in your hands, Jesus, that you have never yet lost a sheep and you never will because you are faithful, you are strong and mighty and you are ruler of this world. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that you've put within us to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that you'll build us up every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.